spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. With the smell of season finales in the air, it's episode 210 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yep, we've got TV season finales coming up here soon in the next month. You know we're going to be all over that for you. You're going to have a lot of great guests to talk about a lot of the shows that are your favorites, and of course we'll be reviewing all of these finales as well. So it's going to be a busy next month or so, but first, going to do a little bit of video game talk this week, talking to Julie Nathanson, who is one of the voices in Far Cry 5, she's Jess Black, also playing a couple of characters in Suicide Squad Hell to Pay, which I reviewed last week, so we'll talk to her about those things and so much more. And we have a big issue that came out this past week, so we're going to get right to it. Action Comics 1000, my spoiler-free review, is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Peter J. Tomasi, writer for House of Penance, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out the old dusty long box, fire up that old laptop, and power on that tablet, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading in a book 80 years In the making, Action Comics 1000 was released this past week, a celebration of 80 years of Superman. Now, I'm not going to go through every contributor in this book because it would take all show long. There's so many great names, Brian Michael Bendis, Jeff Johns, Tom King, Dan Juergens. Those are just the writers. The list goes on and on. The, The artists are absolutely amazing as well. So I will put up a link to the to the book at downandnerdypodcast.com in the This Week section if you want to check out the full list of creators there. I think that's the best way to do it. And again, I'm not going to go through every story here because I think we'd be here all day and I could certainly probably talk the entire show just about Action Comics 1000 alone. But I will say this, as a whole, the book was such a great celebration of 80 years of Superman. It really highlighted in each story, which had a different vibe in it, It kind of highlights how Superman is such a true hero and how his his hope is not only just contagious, but it's just so paramount in the character that he is and how not only he inspires the people around him, whether it be other heroes, whether it be regular everyday citizens, even in one instance, in one of the stories, a, a criminal that he had captured, but also how the citizens the everyday citizens inspire him as well and there's so much here about about him being a dad and being a family man there's also a lot of spotlights on second chances and secondary characters that are involved in superman stories over the years there's actually a story a couple stories spotlighting some of the villains of course you know lex luthor is in there but there there was one other one towards the end of the book that i thought was really funny and you could probably imagine who that character is. I'm not going to spoil any of this book for you because I feel like I'd be doing you a disservice if I did that. Now, I did want to talk about a few of the stories that I thought really needed the spotlight. No surprise that I'm going to talk about Tom King's story in this, which was super emotional. And it just, I mean, it got to me, man. And it was just such a personal thing and of course it's it's a bit depressing because you know it's Tom and Tom kind of kind of does that stuff very very well 
But it was it was at the same time it was there was so much love there as well that I just that was one of my favorite stories in the entire book. Dan Jurgen should be no surprise that uh, his story is on there. It was the one that was the Superman celebration sort of deal, and it may have been the true definition of Superman from start to finish. With no, I mean, I no disrespect to any of the other stories in there, all of which again were amazing, but this one for me really just struck a chord of from start to finish in this short story by Dan Jurgens and company. It was almost like you hit every beat of what Superman is and has been for the last 80 years. And and I just think that that was the quintessential story in the entire thing. And it should be no surprise, someone like Dan Jurgens, who's been responsible for some of the best Superman stories that there are, that he was a part of that. And you can just tell that all of the all of the creators that worked on this just get the Superman character. They understand. Now, the one that I see it seems like getting the most chatter, and rightfully so, is the Brian Michael Bendis story, where he brings a new villain in, not gonna tell you who it is or the circumstances. I will say that this is a game changer, man. And if you're not looking forward to Brian Michael Bendis' Man of Steel books that's gonna that are gonna be coming out in May. You will after reading this story because it kind of alters what we know about Superman's origin story. And that is a gutsy, gutsy thing to do with a character that's been around for 80 years. But, you know, it's Brian Michael Bendis. So you kind of give him that liberty to tell that story. And it's good to know right off the bat here in Action Comics 1000 that we do have DC telling Brian Michael Bendis, look, we trust you. Do your thing. I know that this is going to alter history that that, that that fans know. But at the same time, I think you've got something here, so let's run with it. Now, maybe you're upset about what Bendis did. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're ex- the exact opposite. Maybe you're with me thinking, I love this. I can't wait to see where this goes, and I want the explanation. Not in a bad way, like, I need an explanation now. No, I mean, I, I want to know you know, how this, this villain made a pretty big claim at the end of this book, and it's like, okay, so how did you do that? And I'm going to need a backstory here. It's one of the times where you actually beg for a backstory as a fan. As, as fans, we kind of you know can't stand backstories a lot of times because we know them backwards and forwards. But in this case, I'm going to need answers and I'm going to need a backstory. So I, I'm, I just can't wait to see what's going to be coming. If you haven't per- picked up Action Comics 1000 yet, and you can find it, rush to find it because it was such an amazing celebration of Superman of 80 years and I can't wait to see what's going to going to be going on for the next 80 and that and will be you know kind of the launching point for my son and his fandom of, of Superman going forward he's three now so this is going to be like the start of the next 80 years for him and, and kids like him so I can't wait to see where this is going. I know that this is a tough act to follow, but I think this book might just be able to do it. It's Skyward Number 1 from Image Comics, which is written by Lucifer showrunner Joe Henderson, of course, when we had him on when I had him on the show not too long ago. We talked about Skyward a little bit. Lee Garbert, Garbett does the art for the book. Antonio Fabella on the colors and Simon Bolin on the letters. Now, the book follows a girl named Willa, who is in a world now where gravity is way lower than it used to be. Actually, the first few pages of the book kind of describe what they call in the book G-Day, where, you know, gravity kind of went away in a certain sense. That first part of this book gave me genuine anxiety as someone who has a family. I got to tell you, what Joe Henderson and the group does 
in these first few pages, you've barely even established who your characters are. And you see, he just puts he puts a simple family dynamic out there. That's all he really does. You barely even establish who these characters are, and yet once that you know, once you flip that switch and it starts happening, you are instantly terrified in general, but terrified for this family too. And that is the crazy thing that you know you criticize. I've criticized books in the past for not giving enough of a foundation to make you care about characters and. How Joe Henderson was just able to do that instantly in this book, I think was absolutely amazing. It's almost like you want to know more about them based on what has happened in front of you and not necessarily because you already know something about them. It was almost like an an opposite way of doing it, and it just worked so freaking well. And then you fast forward 20 years, and Will has grown up now. She's still with her dad. Now, I will say that there is kind of a classic, you know, overprotective dad kind of thing, and the daughter wants to explore the world, but don't think that it's as simple as that because it's not. There is a very, there's very much a twist in this, and there's very much something that happens towards the end of the book, actually right at the end of the book. It's a very nice reveal that I actually think will create some pretty good conflict in the next couple of issues going forward, I'm not going to, I've actually gotten a little peek ahead, thanks to Joe Henderson for that. So I'm not going to spoil any of that. I'm not even going to hint at what's going to be coming up in the next couple of issues. But let me just say that as a reader and as readers with your comic friends, this will create a very interesting discussion about this particular predicament that they're finding themselves in at the end of this book. It's almost like, okay, which side are you on? And why? And I don't mean that in the literal sense. It's a great discussion. And I think that that's one thing, especially new comics, don't do enough of. And that's create great discussion. And I think Skyward absolutely does that. The characters are charming. The art is freaking top-notch by Lee Garbutt. I mean, just amazing. And you really get the feel... You really get that zero gravity feel. It's not zero gravity. It's almost zero gravity. But you really get that feel when you're reading this book. And I think that that's a testament to the to the art. Absolutely 100%. So it's been a good week because this is another poll for me. And let me tell you, I cannot wait to find out what's going to be going on in the next few issues of Skyward. Because I'm a fan of Joe Henderson anyway. I don't think that's a secret on this show. But at the same time... To see him jump into a world like this and tell a story that's completely different from the stories that he tells in Lucifer, but still have that kind of charm that makes me love Lucifer, is something that I can't wait to see more of in Skyward from Image Comics going forward. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to dive into Rampage. That's right, my spoiler-filled review of the Rampage movie is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jason Lyles from Rampage the Movie, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, I hope you've got good insurance because we are giving our spoiler-filled review of the Rampage movie this week. And I say spoiler-filled because from here on out, major spoilers for the Rampage movie. So if you haven't seen it yet, you might want to skip ahead a little bit just in case you get something ruined for you. Now, I will say, just really quickly, this movie does follow Davis Okoye, who works at the San Diego Wildlife Refuge. It's not exactly what it's called, but that's basically the gist. It's a sanctuary, and he's 
his his specialty is the gorillas, and he has the he has his own community there with the gorillas, and of course, partnered up with his buddy George, who is the last of his line of an albino gorilla. This he basically said, this is basically he's it, he's the last one. So, and then we see this other company which is working on this program called CRISP, and basically it was a way to cure all diseases, and then the government decided. This wasn't a good idea, the gene editing, and of course, somebody thought it was a great idea and decided to do it on the side anyway. The very beginning of the movie actually occurs because they were doing the the experiments in space. So they, you know, so they couldn't obviously be detected. And then there's this giant rat that's just killed everyone in the crew. And this woman's supposed to be getting the doctor's research out of there. And she says, if you don't come back with my research, you don't come back. And that's a whole thing. And that's basically how the canisters and the agent ends up in in the ground and in various places on planet earth and it's because the 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 emergency pod blows up and down go the canisters so that's how we get ralph that's how we get lizzie and that's how we get george and you see exactly where all of them fall so at least that made sense but and i'm not going to jump around to every scene in the movie here i'm just going to take this bit by bit one of the problems i did have with this movie was that there were a lot of things to me that just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And and one of the things that, and I'm not expecting this movie to make a whole lot of sense basis in reality. That's not what I mean. But like the motive for the, the, the motive for the Wyden family, of course it's, it's, you've got Claire Wyden who's played by Malin Ackerman and Jack Lacey, who is Brett Wyden. Basically, they they they're the ones that were that created the this whole thing in the first place with the with their company Energen, and they're doing the gene editing and it's basically all about money. I get it. It's classic greed, but then there's certain decisions that they make. Well, oh, we'll just lure the monsters to our building, and once they get killed, we'll take a sample. Shouldn't you know that they can't kill them, and what they would have to do to kill them is gonna blow them to smithereens anyway? So there's probably no sample for you to get in the first place. So that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And then at one point, you see uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's character, Davis Koya, get shot. And yeah, he's in the midsection, like the, the lower right quadrant of his midsection. And sure, he's down for the count at first, and you're not sure, okay, how's he going to get up from this? And then a few scenes later, he's just kind of good. And he says, oh, well, it didn't hit any vital organs. Yeah, it might not have rock but you know this isn't the wwe where you could just pop up from going through five tables in 10 minutes if you've been shot you should at least seem somewhat compromised and he really didn't so again this is not a movie that i think should be steeped in reality here but i did have a problem with those couple of things and maybe that's me nitpicking a little bit sure but on to things that i liked is that the rock himself Dwayne the rock Johnson is just money and then you know maybe it seems like he plays the same kind of character every time you know that there's more to Davis Okoye than the fact that he's just really good with gorillas right so you know that he's got some sort of background and you find out that he was some in in an anti-poaching task force and you find out how he found George and it's a really great story in the relationship between Dwayne and between Davis Okoye and George, who's played by Jason Lyles, is just so awesome. And, and I talked to Jason Lyles about that during our interview last week. 
was that this movie is basically about a couple of things. It's about the action, and it's about the relationship between George and Davis, period. Those are the two things that this movie is about, and that relationship between Davis and George, it's an emotional one. It's a funny one. George has these little signs, and he has a, they say in the movie he's got a twisted sense of humor, and that thing at the end where he's trying to, to talk to, to Davis about Dr. Kate Caldwell, who I'll get to in a second, and, you know, maybe there's a little bit more going on there. There's, I, I don't want to spoil exactly what it was, just in case you haven't seen it yet. But if, you, if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what scene I'm talking about there at the end. It, it was just, it's a fun relationship. Even when things are going badly, and you can really see it in Davis's his eyes. And it's brilliant by, by Dwayne Johnson, is that you feel like this is happening to your best friend in real time. And that was one of the things that I really loved about that relationship, and especially uh, Dwayne Johnson's performance, was that you felt like this was legitimately happening to his best friend. So I thought that that was really great. Now, the relationship that I didn't really kind of get was the one with he and Naomi Harris's character, Dr. Kate Caldwell. This is not on Naomi Harris at all, but it just seems like their their relationship jumped so much. And, and it seemed like he trusted her a little bit too soon, and then it was revealed a little too soon that she'd kind of lied to him about her motives. And yeah, maybe he forgave her a little bit too easily for that when they're, after the plane goes down and, and they kind of have that heart-to-heart when he looks like he's going to walk out on her and he doesn't sort of thing. It just something just didn't feel right about that relationship the entire time until towards the end where I started to feel like, okay, now they're starting, there's a connection there. Now they're starting to work as a team, but it just didn't feel like, I almost felt like his team from the wildlife sanctuary would have been a better team to bring along. And they, they might've actually had a little bit, I mean, at least bring one of them with that, with that person. And then that way you've got somebody else to play off of, I guess. It just didn't seem right to me. That whole relationship just just felt off a little bit. But, I mean, the one guy that I loved, and I wished I could have seen more scenes with him, with him and Davis Okoye, was Harvey Russell, played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I loved that character so much. It reminded me of when I saw The Fugitive, how much I loved Tommy Lee Jones' character in The Fugitive. So then you had U.S. Marshals, which spun off of that. Because I wasn't the only one that loved Tommy Lee Jones' character in The Fugitive. I feel like I could watch the hell out of a Harvey Russell movie in some capacity. Put him in anything else. Matter of fact, the Transformers movies that are coming up, give me Harvey Russell in the Transformers movies. If you're going to have humans in there and we're going to do this again, give me a character like that and maybe we'll talk. Because it was just... The, the way you hated him at first, then you started to love him a little bit, you thought you were going to hate him again, and then you end up loving him, and then he would add so much comic relief, and this movie definitely had its fair share of comic relief as well, and if you got Dwayne The Rock Johnson, so that's not a surprise, but every time Harvey Russell stepped on the screen, I knew that I was going to get something either funny or something that was going to make me want to punch him in the face, and either way, I was fine with it. I think he might have been my favorite character in the entire movie, and that's saying something for a movie that involves Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, as far as Lizzie, Ralph, and George are concerned, I thought that they were very well done. I love the fa- I, lo- I love the detail that they had 
I love that they just let them be wild animals, basically, especially Ralph. Ralph got a lot of screen time, and we got to see a lot of Ralph dropping a lot of bodies. That's for sure. But then, but then at the end, you've got Lizzie, who was the one that was basically the toughest to take down. So I thought that that was cool, too. And then you've got George, who ends up being the savior of everything once he gets the antidote. And, you know, the rage is kind of subsided in him. And he ends up kind of being the hero at the end. So it's like every character from the game got their due. And speaking of the game, I saw the Easter eggs. You had the you had the cabinet there in the background in the office at Energen. And then you had, you know, the, the lady in the red dress getting eaten. Love that. Okay, that was... That was a cool little nod, but it didn't feel like they were trying to make it like the game at all, and I think that that was a smart thing. There were certainly parts where, you know, when you see Lizzie slithering through floors of the buildings, that was cool, and you see them start to wreck things at the end with that antenna on the giant building. So you kind of got little winks and nods to the game there, but it didn't feel like you were making this a video game adaptation. It looked like, because you couldn't, right? There's no way you could make a story out of what you had from the game and bring it to the screen. If anything, there's definitely certain things in this movie story-wise that I thought were kind of ridiculous and kind of didn't work for me and, and were a little bit of a distraction. But the one thing I will give everyone from top to bottom credit for is coming up with a story that actually was a legitimate story that you could follow for a game like this. The, the If you could take Rampage and make it into a movie... And give me some sort of story that, in the overall grand scheme of things, actually is a plausible story, even though parts of it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Then you've done something pretty amazing, I think. And and it was definitely an enjoyable movie. Don't get me wrong. There were certainly things I didn't like about it. I, I would have liked to seen more of the uh, San Diego Sanctuary crew. I think that they, they kind of got lost in the lost in the shuffle, and I know maybe they would have been in the way. Maybe some of them got taken down when George tore up the facility. I understand that, but you know, I would like to see more of a callback to that a little bit. You know, maybe he had to have them help with something towards the end, so you don't kind of get rid of those characters entirely, and you don't really break up the movie into two parts. At the same time, the action was good; it was funny at times. There, Dwayne Johnson was amazing, and the story made sense for the most part. But I mean, I just thought that. The, the motive for the villains didn't really jive for me. Uh, I wish we would have seen more of the fight scenes between George, Lizzie, and Ralph fighting each other, not necessarily working together. I know they saved that for the tail end, and I totally understand why you did that. And I don't think this movie should have been any longer than it was. I actually really like the runtime for this movie. But I could have done with a little bit more action. I think we got a pretty good, a, a decent amount at the end. But if they could have broken it up a little bit more, I think that that would have been cool as well. And and I think, but I do think that each monster sort of got their moment in the spotlight too. So I mean, I'm kind of on the fence on the Rampage movie as far as my rating goes because I think it was a good, you know, what you call a popcorn flick, right? You know, it's one of those movies where if it was on some point down the line, it just happened to be on in the background, you'd probably leave it on, right? You'd watch it. And I'm not saying don't go see this movie in the theaters because it's certainly an enjoyable movie. I enjoyed myself. I don't feel like I wasted my money going to see Rampage in theaters. If anything else, you got to have you know the nice big scope of the action that was going on, the buildings falling down and helicopter crashes and such like that. But 
in a time where storytelling has been so good and we've been able to adapt things from like superhero and superhero culture and make it feel so real world even though you know it's not i feel like rampage fell just a little bit short of that now do i think it was a great video game adaptation as far as video game adaptations go and there's been a ton of stinkers this one is up there. I think this one is one of the best, for sure, as far as video game adaptations are concerned. This is not one that you're going to choose to watch. If you're picking from, like, five movies, it's not necessarily going to be the one that you've got at the top of the pile to watch. But it's one of those ones where if you just want, like, a good popcorn flick movie where monsters are fighting each other and buildings are falling all over the place, I could absolutely see popping the Rampage movie in. So if I'm giving this a rating, I'm giving this six and a half gorillas who signed the middle finger out of 10. And that was one of my most funny scenes in the movie as well. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Rampage movie. Up next, we're not done with the movie news because there's a ton of it in nerd news here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David On from the Rampage movie and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You might want to grab that bottomless bucket of popcorn because it's time for nerd news. And I say that because basically we're going to be spending every weekend of our lives at the movies at this rate. Because there was a ton of DC movie news that came out this week. And I'm going to go through it as quickly and as accurately as I possibly can. Because Warner Brothers announces that Steven Spielberg is going to be working on a Blackhawk movie. Now if you're not familiar with Black Hawk, it's about a squadron of World War II era pilots. And yeah, they've battled the Axis powers. They also battle supervillains and war machines and stuff like that. Now, you might not be familiar because we had a short stretch with them in the New 52. There was a little bit of stuff from them, but not a whole lot. And it's been a while since then as well. So it's not like they've been out there and known in the DC Universe recently. And Amblin Entertainment's going to be involved in this. Steven Spielberg is actually hoping to direct the project himself. And David Cope, who did Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, will write the script. Now, before you panic, because I know anytime I say Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in a room full of nerds like myself, that sets off alarm bells. Also, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, that also sets off alarm bells because that wasn't the best movie either. But... It's not like this guy hasn't written a ton of stuff for Steven Spielberg before. Spielberg obviously trusts him for a reason, so I don't think you get all crazy about this just yet. Plus, Spielberg's kind of got a good track record for telling stories like this, and I really think that this is something that can work. And I love that DC and Warner Brothers are looking outside of their main superhero line continuity to do movies and television because it would be easy to just focus on your superhero characters, right? And just tell those stories and do those movies. And there are a ton of them, but this is DC's way of, of saying, look, we're deeper than just that. And that's not something that every publisher can claim saying that they're deeper than their heroes. You know, other, other comic book publishers, they don't have a ton of superhero books, but they've got a lot of other great storytelling and vice versa. But DC is trying to show, and I give them credit for making this effort, trying to show they are more than just capes. They are more than just superheroes. They can do plenty more than that. And to tell a World War II era story 
which I'm really hoping they base it in that timeline. Please, please, please do that. Don't try to update this. Just leave it where it is. To do that and to kind of put like a superhero spin on that, I think it's going to be a neat story. I love the fact that a legit guy like Steven Spielberg, a legit director, is involved in this. I think that that's going to be a huge, huge help for DC. And maybe you convince him to take on a superhero property down the line after this. You know, maybe he becomes more of the DC realm. So if Steven Spielberg is truly a quote-unquote get for Warner Brothers in DC... That's going to be great, especially after the success of Ready Player One. It feels like, not that Spielberg ever went away, but he's back, you know, he's got his legs back, and it looks like it's really, really going to be a nice stretch for Steven Spielberg in these next few movies. Hopefully that is the case, and Blackhawk is as good as I think it can be. Moving along to something that we kind of touched on last week, and it's back because Kathy Yan is going to be directing... A Birds of Prey movie for Warner Brothers in DC. Now, there are the only constants in the two scripts that are out there, scripts that are out there, according to Variety, are Batgirl and Harley Quinn. Those two characters will be in this movie no matter what. And the Christina Hodson script that I was talking about last week when we were talking about Batgirl, apparently that's still out there. Her Birds of Prey script is still out there. That could actually still happen despite all of the Birds of, despite the Batgirl news that came out last week. Now there's varying reports depending on where you look that Suicide Squad 2 shooting is going to be delayed and now they're seeing, you know, production starting in 2019 and it looks like we could see Birds of Prey and Batgirl as early as 2020. I think that that would be pretty cool and I think Birds of Prey is something that I really do hope that DC is making a priority because I think Birds of Prey could be that niche thing for DC that's going to take off. you got several strong female characters to work with. You could go with male or female villains. Almost doesn't even matter, but you get Harley out there who is very, very popular if you're going to do that. I don't think you needed to necessarily go Harley with this, but I understand why you're doing it, and I don't disagree with it either. So, because Harley's certainly a legit enough villain for the Birds of Prey, and I saw a report in one in one article that I was reading, and I, and I apologize for not remembering the source, but saying that might have been ComicBook.com saying that you know you could use a Birds of Prey movie to set up Suicide Squad too. Maybe the Birds of Prey capture Harley Quinn, and that's how she ends up back on Task Force X for Suicide Squad 2. So it kind of makes sense after Joker breaks her out in the first one, and maybe that's where you go with it. So I think that that's a nice little transition. You don't even, you know, there's no kind of break in the storytelling at all. The continuity is still there. Not that I think everything needs to be connected because I've been very outspoken against that in the past. But, I mean, it makes sense. And And I would love to see Black Canary and Huntress on the big screen. Are you kidding me? Actually, if you wanted to do almost any iteration of the Birds of Prey. You want to change it up a little bit? I'm down. You want to put, you also want to put more villains in there. You want to put the sirens in there as well. You want to have Poison Ivy and Catwoman. I'm not going to be mad at that either. Let's have, let's have a big, strong female character brawl in this Birds of Prey movie. And then let Birds of Prey almost set up Gotham City sirens if you want to. There's just so many possibilities. As you can tell, I'm getting a little giddy about this possibility because these are characters that have been long overdue for their spotlight and they looks like they are going to finally get it. So I really hope that the spotlight is going to be on these characters like it seems like DC is doing. 
One more little bit of news, this one actually more for Vertigo. John Ridley, who's doing the American Way, Those Above and Below comics and graphic novels, that is already going to be going to theaters, apparently, according to Deadline. Now, before the graphic novels release, which is going to be released this coming week, they, this announcement's been made. Of course, the comics are already out. Now, this kind of uses superheroes to explore social issues like integration, race, and things like that, inclusion, all of these different things. So, And, and it's really, really a good book. And i actually be talking about the graphic novel a little bit next week on the show, I think. But it, it's a great story. And it, the way that you they incorporate, that Ridley incorporates the heroes, it just seems so like this could be real life sort of thing. So if you, and this is one of those deals where if Ridley's involved and when I chatted with him at DC and DC 2018, he has a passion for this project and he has such a good perspective on the way to deal with these issues and to tell these stories. And you know, any, no matter what side you find yourself on in any social argument or political argument, you don't want to be preached to one way or the other overly, right? I'm not saying that one side is more right than the other. I'm not taking any stances here, so don't blow me up on Twitter. I'm just trying to tell you that John Ridley really takes a real-world perspective on these issues and looks at every angle, and I think that that's one thing that's so great about the American way, those above and below, and I can't wait to see how that translates onto the big screen because I think that this is another thing that even though it's from Vertigo, this is another opportunity for the DC Comics line to say we are more than just capes. Yes, we're still using superheroes, but these are the kinds of stories that we're able to tell because of the characters that we're creating. And I think that that's great. The movie news is not over. Just when you thought you could put the popcorn away and you wouldn't have to go back to the theater, you're going to be doing it again because Paramount according to Deadline, has just announced a mask movie. That's right, the Momo Armored Strike Command is going to be coming to theaters, and F. Gary Gray is going to be the one that directs it. Yep, straight out of Compton, The Fate of the Furious. Is this not, like, the absolute 100% perfect choice for this mask movie? Because when I think mask in a modern setting, the first thing that actually pops into my head is the Fast and the Furious because of all the vehicles that are involved and you've got, you know, the flying vehicles against the ground vehicles and there's all other, you know, just the varying amounts of vehicles and the things that you can do. And if you've seen any of the Fast and Furious movies lately, how they're almost like superhero movies anyway, and then you incorporate the suits into this, F. Gary Gray is 100% the perfect choice for this. And, And you don't get perfect choices very often. You get good choices. But there's very few times where I go, that is the perfect choice. This is easily the perfect choice. And I don't really want to get into casting right now. Who I think should be casted is who, because I think there's a lot of great choices for these characters. But I do think that the tone of this movie and the setting, actually, where are we setting this? If we're, if we're setting this in modern times, which I think they probably will, if you're setting this in today, I think that will actually influence how they cast this thing, and what age the actors are going to be for the Mobile Armor Strike Command, and Miles Mayhem as well for Venom, how old are these cast members going to be? So I can't even talk about casting until I know what age range we're talking about here, because they could really go any way they want to with this, so I can't speculate on casting until we have more information. So I actually hope that we get more information on that 
at San Diego Comic-Con this year, so we'll keep digging and find out what we can find. Now, moving right along to the TV realm and something that was actually a little bit of shocking news this week, according to Warner Brothers Television, Mark Guggenheim is out as showrunner of Arrow. I kind of say that in a way that it was more like they announced that Beth Schwartz is replacing Mark Guggenheim as showrunner coming up for season seven. Now, Guggenheim is still going to be ex- executive consultant for Arrow and DC's Legends of Tomorrow, so it's not like he's out completely. Now, when Wendy Miracle is out. She is no longer a part of Arrow. Now, if you wonder, you know, what's Beth Schwartz's experience? She was a writer's assistant for season one and actually co-executive producer for season six. So she has absolutely worked her way up the ranks and is very, very familiar with the show itself. Now, I think that I'm not alone here in saying that this sixth season of Arrow has had its good moments, but it is one of the most frustrating seasons of Arrow, I think that there's ever been. I've I was not a fan of season four, but season six is just a level of frustration for me that I can't quite quantify. And I do I'm not gonna say there hasn't been some good storytelling involved as well, but there is. But just the the whole fractured team dynamic thing, I understand it. I just the way it's going, I'm not really a fan of how Things are going down, and it just seems like some of the arguments are a little bit petty. And, you know, how are we not past this because we've got something worse going on, but yet you guys can't stop fighting with each other? It's just very frustrating. There's quite a few things that have been very frustrating about this season of Arrow. I think I could go on and on. I'm not in the camp of some fans that I've seen that are giving up on the show or that have given up on the show based on what's happening. I still love the show, and I still love a lot of things about it. And, I, again, I do think there's been some good parts to season six. I do think season six has been better than season four, which I was very, very critical of. But at the same time, you get Beth Schwartz in there. And even though she's been a part of the team, I feel like we're finally going to get, for the first time in a while on Arrow, I think we're finally going to get a nice, new, fresh perspective. You don't have to reboot anything. You don't need to recast everything. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is we'll get a nice, fresh perspective and maybe the show will be just a little bit different you don't need to make a drastic change to arrow to make it the show that we always loved you just need to make little changes here and there and maybe the writing a little bit different maybe a little bit different kind of story and i'm hoping that tonally that's the kind of thing that beth schwartz is going to do give me a different perspective on these characters give me something a little bit different. Different is the theme here for me. I need something that's not what we're hitting, what we're getting right now, I guess is the main point. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation based on episode titles for the end of season six about what's going to be going on. And I love the fact we're going to get more of Colton Hayes in the next season. And maybe we'll follow that storyline with him and Willa a little bit more. Willa Holland, of course, plays Speedy. I, I, it doesn't matter to me what we do as long as it's something a little bit different. Because any show in its seventh season has to be a little bit different, right? You can't keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I feel like one of my frustrations with Arrow is that the characters are having a lot of the same arguments over and over and over again. And a lot of the same beats. And it's just time to do something a little bit different. And I really hope that Beth Schwartz is going to be the one to do that. Finally, a little bit of video game chatter before we move on. Call of Duty Black Ops 4 looks like, according to a rumor, this is not confirmed at all yet, will not have 
a single player mode. Now, Kotaku has been on this. Polygon was on this as well, reporting that it wouldn't be ready for the October launch of the game anyway. So they've just decided to scrap it. Now, the game would have a Battle Royal mode, which, of course, is the last player standing. And I think that this is kind of a move to compete with Fortnite and PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds because those are the games that are dominating the headlines right now, right? You've got your diehard Call of Duty fans, and Call of Duty's been around for a while, but now these new games are coming up with, guess what? What did I just talk about? A fresh perspective. Something different. Different vibe, different tone than Call of Duty. And look how successful they have been with the millions and millions of subscribers. So now, Call of Duty is finally, it looks like they're finally saying, okay, we better do something. And I know they're doing zombie modes and stuff like that. I'm sure that there will be certain DLCs. But I just feel like the folks that make Call of Duty are finally waking up and finally embracing what they are and what their users primarily do. The users want that player-versus-player atmosphere, that multiplayer gaming. That is what Call of Duty fans are playing the game for. This is what they want. I know you probably, if you're a Call of Duty fan, you probably do like the, the single-player story mode, but probably not as much as you do the multiplayer. And with so much going on in the world of multiplayer gaming... Call of Duty was almost one of the originators of that, so why not fully embrace who you were and get back on that horse and start doing what you do? Show these games like Fortnite and PlayerUnknown's Battleground that you're still the king. And I think that's what Call of Duty needs to try and do here. Show them that you are the king of multiplayer, open-world, online gaming, basically. This is what you do. So let's see if putting the focus on that will be what gets fans talking more about Call of Duty again. Now we'll find out more in mid-May. I think that they made the announcement that we're going to find out more about what's going to be going on with Black Ops 4. But do not be surprised when this announcement is made because I think this is really the right decision and a good step in the right direction of Call of Duty. And, And why not just embrace who you are? I think that that is the main point of this whole thing. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be sitting down to talk more video games, Far Cry 5 to be exact, and Suicide Squad Hell to Pay with voiceover actress Julie Nathanson next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. So I love when we have somebody on the show that has not one, but two, actually a thousand amazing things going on. You've probably heard her as Jess Black in Far Cry 5 and Silver Banshee and Julie in Suicide Squad Hell to Pay. It's Julie Nathanson. Julie, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, again, I was saying you have been very fortunate to be a part of so many different video game projects. I mean, Call of Duty, Final Fantasy, and the list kind of goes on and on. So what's it like to be able to play such a wide variety of characters? You know, honestly, it is my favorite part of voiceover. And I think what drew me to it in the first place, other than, you know, my origin story, which was responding to an insult. But we'll leave that well enough alone for a moment. For me, the idea of not being typecast or pigeonholed based on appearance was very intriguing. Being able to get in the booth and portray whatever character comes my way is really, really fun. And it's also very expanding. 
So I, I've kind of stopped deciding what I can't do. And I just let my agent send me whatever they think I can do. And I go, really, you thought I could do that? Okay, hold on, let me try. Oh, look what I can do. So it's all playtime. It's really, really fun. And it's an honor. I mean, I'm, I, I, I honestly don't know how I got so lucky. I've been on some great projects. I've worked with really nice people. And it's, uh, it's kind of dreamy. I'm not gonna lie to you. Well, I'm sure you had a blast doing Far Cry 5 as well. So let's talk about Jess Black here for a second. She seems to have kind of led a very rough life before and even during the events of the game. So what's it like to kind of get inside the mind of a character like Jess? Yeah, it's interesting. She She's such a beautifully written character. And yeah, she has a, a really tortured and traumatic past. And um, and it was so well written. You know, obviously, the, the banter with, uh, you know, with Herc and some of the other characters is so much fun. And she's so snarky. And, and that can be such a great cover for someone such a great defense mechanism, when you've had so much pain. So her snarkiness would be, you know, a real strength for her in addition to her, you know, amazing hunting skills. But when it comes to sort of digging into that dark past, that story was written so beautifully. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but, um, you know, it's, it's quite visceral, the story itself and the way that it's told and the dialogue I was given. So it, it, it actually made it easier to get into her character by being able to imagine and identify with some layer of trauma. And it was, it was really intense. I mean, I, I, you know, I have worked on a lot of really fun games and, and such a, a wide range of, characters and attitudes and I love to play with comedy and um, really wonderful broad characters but this particular story was so deep and so tragic that it really grounded her for me and that is such a testament to the writing and the create the creation of the character so it was it was intense it was wonderful and intense and I definitely had some tears in my eyes at a couple points so it was uh, it went pretty deep I can only imagine. As a matter of fact, I love that they had like character spotlight trailers for each character. And if you watch the one for Jess, there's a line in there where she's talking about how animals can, quote, sense an apex predator and mm-hmm. they won't mess with her, which I loved that line so much. Now, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of one of just the many unique skills that she brings to the table, though. So what's what aspect of her character do you think is kind of the most badass for you? Interesting. I mean, such a, it's odd. What The answer that's coming up for me is her quiet. And I, 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 it's not just that she's stealthy and that, that animals can't sense, but it's actually the fact that she's, she's just kind of present. She can be quiet. She's not, you know, Herc is rambling, God bless Herc. But you know, you, you have characters <laughs> whose, whose, whose energies are sort of more in your face. And she's so internal. And I feel like that's a real strength for her. I think, generally speaking, she's thinking before she's speaking, at least. And, you know, she's a pretty damn good shot, too. Mm. So I would say strength. But, you know, her resilience, most of all, again, coming from such a traumatic and painful background to be able to to go on the mission that she's on and, and to want to save the people that she can, I think is, um, you know, that's that's really finding a place of mastery from a place of pain. Again, not really spoiling any anything here. Jess certainly had some up-close and personal experiences with the Eden's Gate cult. Now, any story involving cults, for me, is always kind of very creepy and uncomfortable at times, but I think that's actually a compliment to the storytelling. So did you get that vibe as you were kind of working on the game? You know, 
the characters themselves are are written to be so. I mean, you really can't. I can't watch the father's stuff without being creeped out. So, mm-hmm. you know, sure. I don't know if it's a, if it's necessarily for me a comment, you know, commentary on cults versus, you know, another kind of grouping. But for me, um, the portrayal of those characters with such a, um, I don't know, there's that the, the the gaslighting and the brainwashing that that seems to be portrayed in this incredibly skeevy manner is uh yeah it's kind of creepy but you know that's also greg's portrayal is pretty incredible exactly we're talking to julie nathanson who plays of course plays a bunch of different characters and a bunch of different things that you love and here's another one actually you you got to work with one of my favorite voice actresses victoria atkin on horizon zero dawn the frozen wilds so I know that she's also done some motion capture work for some of her characters in the past. So is there any character that you've played that you would kind of love to be able to do motion capture stuff for? God, what a cool question. Thank you for asking a question I have never heard. Because what you're talking about, yeah, it's cool. I mean, what you're talking about is, is, you know, having an opportunity to physicalize a character that I've only voiced. You know, what's funny is the first thing that comes to my mind is so old school and it's, it's ridiculous. But one of my first um, animation gigs uh, was, <laughs> was for the Zeta project. And I remember, I remember at the time when I uh, playing Ro Rowan, I wanted I wanted to be able to physicalize her and I couldn't, but looking at more, uh, I think in terms of more of the video game world, I think it would be, I think it would be fun to physicalize Chocolina. (laughs) 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 It's so ridiculous, but you know, I mean, I I wouldn't mind having some big old orange feathers and I don't know. I mean, she's, she's crazy. And she'd be a lot of fun because there would be a lot of physicality. That definitely would be a lot of fun. I'm Jimmy. I'm sure you had a lot of fun with Suicide Squad Hell to Pay as well. You were Sylvia, Silver Banshee and Julie in the movie. Now, I've already given my spoiler-filled review of the movie last week. So, <gasps> Did this, you spoil it? Did I, you I, give away the they, secret? They, I, didn't, I didn't give away the end. Okay. That I did not give away because I, I, well, and I always warn people, say, hey, this is spoiler filled. So, you know, enter at your own risk sort of thing. So I didn't spoil the very end because I didn't feel like that was cool. But were you kind of happy that you played two characters after learning one of them was going to just kind of die right at the beginning of the movie? Oh, spoilers. Um, yeah, I, I will neither confirm nor deny the death of one of my characters in the beginning. Of the movie. Uh, I, I will tell you that I was, um, I was already thrilled to be offered the role of Silver Banshee because, I mean, she's <laughs> she's so badass, mm-hmm. and I was really really excited to voice her. But Julie is such she's a hilarious juxtaposition to Silver Banshee totally. because, I mean, you know, she's she's a member of the Suicide Squad. Nobody really wants her around. You know, she's she's got her own agenda. She. You know, she's kind of making out. She needs to get a room. (laughs) Like she and so she's I found her really funny and and really fun to play because there were moments, you know, for me, I found some moments of comedy with her and Silver Banshee's just like all edge. Like she is just all Mm -hmm. edge. So it was fun to be able to play two characters regardless of somebody living or dying. Thank you for your spoilers. Well, well, you know, it's it's very cool, though, because it was a very you couldn't get two more opposite characters. And actually, 
What I loved about the Silver Banshee character was it's different from other portrayals that we've seen of that character in other forms of media. Is that a kind of cool thing for you to be able to do? Yeah, it was really cool. I I, I liked that she relatively... uh... I wouldn't call her soft-spoken, but she's certainly a woman of few words. I understand um, why you say soft-spoken. If, if anybody, <laughs> if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what she's talking about. So I understand that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I listen. You know, anytime I get to play in the DC universe, I'm a happy camper. And to be able to to do a slightly different take on that character was was pretty cool. I mean, it was it was a, again like a really a great experience and. Alan Burnett, you know, wrote such a, a wonderful script and he, he'd been supervising producer on the Zeta project, which I mentioned earlier. So I, you know, it had been a long time since he and I had worked together, but working with him is pretty great. He's a, he's a legend. So he wrote a great script. Definitely. Now, one of the things I did love to love about the movie too, when I reviewed it was that I talked about how it was cool that it essentially it was like a three team race to the object that everyone was after. And it seemed like Silver Banshee was always at the right place at the right time for her team. So how much fun was that to kind of play and where you realize, oh, so I'm going to be the one that just kind of spoils everything for everyone when I show up. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, if your power is a sonic scream, you know, it's location, location, location. You know, as long as you're right there in the mix, you can take out whatever you need to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that she's as powerful as she is. The, um, you know, the conceit of the movie being that you have villainous faction against villainous faction against villainous faction mm-hmm. um, was really intriguing to me. I love the idea that you have no choice but to root for the bad guys. You just have to choose which bad guys you want to root for. Exactly. Um, I, I just, you know, that's a that's a fun ride for anybody. And, you know, that that film, you know, they, DC can push the envelope and it is a hard R. I mean, I know you've re- you've reviewed the movie, so I'll. I'll mm-hmm. Maybe I'll go back and listen to your review of the movie, but <laughs> it, um, you know, it's a, it's a nice hard R and, and there's some dark stuff in there. And I like that that's where DC will take it. Yeah. There's no question about that at all. Hard R definitely describes <laughs> it pretty darn well. So before I let you go, Julie, you're also going to do something very cool with YouTube red called Dallas and Robo with Kat Dennings, John Cena, and a whole bunch of other, it's actually a very great cast and you get yeah. to play some of the computer voices on the show. And a lot of the times the computer gets to be the biggest wise ass on the show, which I love. So for anyone who doesn't know, tell us a little bit about the show and what we can expect. Well, what I can tell you is that, um, I have for, again, just from my own experience with the computer thing, just to riff on this for a second, I have been for whatever reason, I consider myself a very human person. I'm pretty animated as people go. And I, I really, I don't have any suspicions that I could actually be an AI. Um, but I play, <laughs> I voice, I voice a lot of computer voices. I have voiced, I was um, like the PA announcer, which was basically the computer voice in The Punisher. Yep. I was call in uh, Mighty Number no. 9. I played on an episode of The Odd Couple. I was Vicky, which was basically like a, a robot vacuum. Oh, wow. Um, I've done... I, so it's, it's been very odd. I have like a whole list of them. And it's very, very odd to me. And so when this came around, I was like, yeah, of, co- of course I'd love to do a computer voice in this. And then I looked at the cast and I looked at the script and I could not stop laughing. This the show is going to be fantastic. I'm so excited. It's my first time working with YouTube Red. You know, Jane Lynch is in the cast. I mean, <laughs> it's 
sort it's of. A, it's a great cast. If anybody has an IMDb yet, do it because it's yeah. a really good cast. Yeah, I'm I'm really really excited and and uh, yeah, I don't I don't really want to give away too much about the computer. Just know that I really like to voice them. I think that it's going to be a lot of fun either way. And that is set for release, by the way, sometime this year on YouTube Red. We'll keep you posted on that. Don't worry. And Far Cry 5, of course, available now at your favorite video game retailers. And you can also get Suicide Squad Hell to Pay on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital. Again, at your favorite retailer. I could go down the list of everything you can hear her in, but we'd be here all day. It's Julie Nathanson. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. A lot of fun chatting with Julie Nathanson about so many of the characters that she's involved in. But Jess Black is such a great character in Far Cry 5. And I love her story arc. Again, she didn't really want to reveal too much. And I understand, but if you played Far Cry 5, you know exactly what I'm, what I'm talking about. And that backstory is so amazing. And it's such a great character. And then you go on with Ban- with Silver Banshee in Suicide Squad Hell to Pay and Julie. And, I mean, there's just such a wide variety that clearly Julie Nathanson can do. And just go to her IMDb page and look at all of the stuff that she's done and has going on here coming up, including Dallas and Robo. And you'll be shocked at how many characters that you love that she's probably played either in video games or in animation because she's done a ton of stuff. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks for Julie Nathanson for joining me. Go get everything that she's involved in. She's amazing. Want more information on this week's show and past shows as well? Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. That is where you get all the information that you need. Also, make sure you're following us on social media as well so you can retweet the podcast at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, also there on Instagram as well. Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy if you want to like us on Facebook. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.